brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles? We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so we've been working through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel since January, and we are in 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel is really a simple, 1 and 2 Samuel is really a simple book to understand. It's about God. God is king, and in this book, he's extending his rule and reign over people. That's what's happening. And what First and Second Samuel does is it chronicles the growth and progress of God's kingdom on earth. And in Second Samuel chapter 7, we come to this pivotal point as God extends his kingdom. So the sermon this morning is Second Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1, reading all the way to verse 29. So hear the word of God. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, 
For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it, be, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. O Father, we do ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This world has real problems. This world has real problems. And in our fractured, in our divided society, I think that's something we all can agree on. This world has real substantial and significant problems. But after this initial agreement that all of society has, that this world has problems, there is a diversity of opinions. There's disagreement. What are the problems that this world faces? Well, there's no consensus when you read all of the different opinions. And it only gets worse from there. What is the cause of all of these problems in the world? There is no consensus again. And what is the way out from all of these problems? Again, no consensus. But we have the word of the gospel, and the word of the gospel speaks into our confusion. It says, with straightforward simplicity, a very great message. It says, there is a king, and this king rules and reigns over all people and all places. And what this word of the gospel does is it cuts through all the differing opinions, all the disagreements like a, like a sharp knife. This word diagnoses our worlds. We don't face problems, plural. We face a plot problem, singular. Humanity stands at odds with this king who rules and reigns over all people and all places. That's the problem. And at the same time, the word of the gospel diagnoses us. It also offers a way out. The gospel comes to us and bids us to repentance and faith. It commands humanity to stop its war, to stop its rebellion, to cease its conflict and do what? Turn around and bend down on a knee and call this king Lord, this king who rules and reigns over everyone and everything. And this word, the word of the gospel, is what the Lord speaks into David's open ear in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in our chapter, David immediately recognizes this word of the gospel for what it is. He grasps the extraordinary nature of what he hears as Yahweh speaks to him. So David responds in verse 19, and he responds in wonder and worship. He says, this is the instruction for humanity. 
And that response can be interpreted in several different ways. It can be translated literally something like this, this is the law for man, or, or this is the Torah for man, or it can be interpreted more figuratively. More interpretive skin, spin can be put on it, something like, this is the charter for humanity. And so whatever way we take these words, they reveal the extraordinary nature of what happens in chapter 7. Because in this chapter, the Lord comes to David, and he speaks to David about David, about David's family, and about a coming son. And David speaks back to God, and David's words back to God reveal the significance of what God has said. David is saying in verse 19 that this word of the gospel that has come to him reaches out past him and presses themselves on the entire world, being applicable to every man, every woman across time and space. It diagnoses the problem for all of humanity, and it provides the way out for all of humanity. David says, this is the charter for humanity. And so David's Worship, as he hears the word of the gospel, cues us into the importance of chapter 7. But that's not the only cue we find in chapter 7. There are some other important cues that we can't neglect. As you think about the story as we've been receiving it week after week after week, the narrative has been fast-moving and wild. So just think back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. What have we experienced in this book? We've experienced civil war. We've experienced assassinations, a couple of them. We've experienced war and political backroom dealings. We've experienced deaths. Remember Uzzah. We've experienced great battles as the Yahweh, Yahweh conquers the Philistines. And that's been the content we've been looking at week after week after week. But here in chapter 7, that, that fast and frantic pace stops. And what do we find? We find a conversation. David speaks to Nathan, and then the Lord speaks to David through Nathan, and then finally David speaks to the Lord all alone. This is a change-up. And so what the text of Scripture does is it, it slams on the brakes, and it forces us to slow down, to stop, and to listen. Chapter 7 is all about the ear. As God's people, we need to stop and carefully listen to what is said between all of these characters. But there's another cue that we can't ignore And that's the duration of this conversation. Just look at chapter 7. This is a long conversation. It's a sustained conversation. In fact, if you just focus in on one side of the conversation, on the Lord's side of the conversation, this is the Lord's longest speech since the days of Moses in Sinai. Just think about that for a moment. Think about all the time that passed between Moses and David. Just think about all the events that happened between Moses and David. Think about all the characters that we meet in our Bibles from Moses to David. And here we find the Lord speaking, a speaking that hasn't happened in such length since the days of Moses. And as readers of Scripture, that should catch our attention, should make us really keen. Whatever is going on here in chapter 7 has has biblical shaping power. Just as Sinai looms over all of Scripture, just as Moses' ministry looms large over all of Scripture, you can't understand your Bible without grappling with Moses and Sinai, the same thing is true for 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't grapple with these words, and David, you can't understand the rest of your Bible. It won't make any sense. And perhaps that's another reason why David worshipped in verse 19 saying, this is the Torah for man. And so we have David's words in front of us, verse 19, and we have to ask, 
Well, David, what is this instruction? What is this charter? What is this Torah for all of humanity? What is this word you received from Yahweh? And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus in on this charter for humanity, and we're going to describe it with four words. And so I'll give them to you right at the beginning. The charter is gracious, it's specific, it's guaranteed, and it's everlasting. And these four words are going to help us sort through this long and sustained conversation we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's start with the first word, gracious. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. The Lord's charter is gracious in character. The Lord's charter is gracious in character. So chapter 7 begins with the desire of David. And David is bothered at the beginning of chapter 7. There's this disparity. David is living in a house of cedar. But he looks out and he sees the ark of the Lord. And the ark of the Lord is in a tent, a a movable tent a nomadic tent. And so what does David want to do? He wants to solve this disparity by building a house of cedar for the Lord. But immediately, David is rebuffed by the Lord. The answer that David receives is no. But it's not a hard no or a forever no. It's a a not yet sort of no. A house will be built, but it won't be built by David. And we'll hear more about this in verse 13. And as readers, we ask, well, why? Why this negative answer? And so we work through the text, and as we work through the text, the answer becomes apparent. The Lord says no to David because he wants to teach David a lesson. And what's the lesson? Well, this charter will not be founded by the initiative of man or be advanced by the ingenuity of man or rest upon the strength of man. Man cannot build what needs to be built. Instead, we learn in chapter 7, it will come from the powerful working of God's grace and God's grace alone. The charter will be founded upon the initiative of God and advanced by the ingenuity of God, and it will ultimately rest upon the strength of God and that alone. And so the Lord starts to do a spiritual work in chapter 7. He goes to work on David's heart. So look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord starts talking about David's past, and he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Just notice the language here. Yahweh. Yahweh took David from the pasture. Yahweh set David over Israel. Yahweh was with David. Yahweh cut off all of David's enemies. Who is the mover, the initiator, the worker in all of this? It is Yahweh, the gracious covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Look at the past, David. Who was working? It was me. It was the Lord. And then the text goes on, and the Lord continues his work on David's heart. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. The Lord says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Just notice the language again here. 
The Lord is retaining the same emphasis. The emphasis is on Yahweh. The only change here is in the grammar, in the verb. The tense changes. It was past tense, but now it is future tense. It's all about what Yahweh is going to do for David. Yahweh will make David a great name. Yahweh will settle and secure Israel. Yahweh will give rest to Israel and defeat every single enemy. And so we're working through this, and the Lord is working on David's heart. And then the clincher comes in verse 11. This is the climactic verse. The Lord says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a sure house. And so the lesson comes full circle. Can you see it? The chapter begins, David wants to build a house for the Lord, his God. But the chapter comes in verse 11. It turns it all around. The Lord says no. And we ask why? Well, because the Lord must first build David a house. That's what this charter is all about. Not what David is going to build, but what the Lord is going to build for David. It's about Yahweh's grace, what Yahweh has done and what Yahweh will do. And as we think about it, the foundations of the gospel are beginning to to become unearthed before us. What do we see in chapter 7 in these words? We see that the gospel is all of grace from top to bottom, from inside to outside and everywhere in between. There is no mixture in the gospel with human energy or effort. It is just the pure working of God's grace. It is about what Yahweh has done. It is about what Yahweh will do, what Yahweh will build. And so we see the first word in chapter 7. This charter is gracious. It is gracious in character. Second word, this charter is specific. We can say the Lord's charter is specific in content. So in verse 11, when the Lord promises to build David a house, we can't get confused by what the Lord is talking about. The Lord isn't talking about strapping on a work belt and taking his tools and building a literal house for David. This isn't about wood or cement or bricks. There's a play on words here. David wants to build Yahweh a physical house, but Yahweh is talking about something different, and so we have to look into the text. This house that Yahweh is going to build is found in verse 12 and verse 13. Listen to it. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what is this house that the Lord is going to build? It is ultimately a son. And so what we see in in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 7 is that the Lord's charter is reaching out past David, even David's lifetime. When David lies down to sleep, the Lord is going to do something for David. He's going to give him a son. And the son is going to be unique. Verse 14 says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God is going to adopt this coming son of David, becoming his father, and David's son will gain a better title. He will not just be called David's son, but he ultimately will be called God's son. And as we ponder this, especially verse 14, we have to work to grasp the significance of this. Just picture in your mind a funnel. You know how funnels work. At the top of a funnel, there's this wide opening, and it's wide, so you can just pour in all sorts of stuff. You can pour in gallons of liquid, and you don't make a mess. But you also know how funnels work. The top is wide, but at the bottom, it's very narrow. So you pour in all the stuff at the top, but just a little bit comes out at the bottom. 
Now imagine with me that you can go to your Bible and you can turn your Bible into liquid and you pour it into a funnel. So you pour into the funnel all the books that come before 1st and 2nd Samuel. So in goes Genesis and all the promises made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And after that, in goes the book of Exodus and the great rescue story of Israel. After that, you pour in the law, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all these stipulations and regulations, they go into the funnel as well. And then come some great history books, Joshua and Judges and Ruth, they all go in. So we're pouring in gallons of biblical material. And what comes out at the bottom point? Well, look at the bottom of the funnel. What comes out? It's verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What we find happening in chapter 7 is that God's whole plan, the whole story of Scripture, gets squeezed down to this single, narrow, specific point. The one whom God calls his son, the one God will place on a throne, this coming son of David is what the whole Bible is about. And so the specificity we find in verse 14 is what gives the Lord's words, this gospel, its concreteness. The gospel isn't a proclamation of theories or principles or ethics. Rather, what this chapter teaches us, that the gospel at its heart is a proclamation of what? It's a proclamation of a person. At its heart is a proclamation of a coming king who will reign over the earth. And as we think more about this verse, this specific verse gives the gospel its gravity If the whole storyline of the Bible can be squeezed down to this single and narrow and specific point, then this is the issue that will make or break humanity. If this is what the whole Bible is about, this coming son, this is a message that either saves or shatters humanity, depending upon how this message is received. And so if you go to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 gives us a flavor of how this message of the gospel should be preached. Psalm 2 preaches this message both with concreteness, there is a person, and also with gravity. The psalmist says, preaching to his generation, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so we find specificity in this preaching of the gospel. There is a son, we're preaching a person, he rules and he reigns over everything. And then there's gravity. There's two ways to respond to the son. You can rebel against him. And if you rebel against him, you will be shattered by him, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But there is another alternative. You can take refuge in him. And if you take refuge in him, you shall be called blessed. Blessed. And so the charter of the Lord is specific in its content. It's about a coming son. Third word. Guaranteed. So the charter of the Lord is guaranteed in its terms. So just thinking about the story of First and Second Samuel so far, we have witnessed failure after failure after failure. There was first Eli and his house. Do you remember that story, Hophni and Phineas? The house was full of sin, and what happened? The house crumbled and fell apart and was destroyed. And then there was Saul and his house. And the same thing happened to Saul in his house. Saul gave himself to sin, and Saul's house came crumbling down. And even this happens to Samuel's house, but on a smaller scale. Samuel's house just disappears from Scripture. Samuel, this great man of God, just just disappears. 
His house doesn't last. And First and Second Samuel has been this large character study on the sinfulness of man. What is man? Well, man is unreliable and prone to fall away. And we see it in story after story. And when man is given a chance to turn around, a chance to repent, more, than, more often than not, man what? Man simply just refuses to heed God's word. And so with this realism, we've looked at Eli's house and Saul's house, even Samuel's house. We turn to David's house and we ask, God is placing all this importance on David's house. How can we be sure that David's house will be reliable and last? This is the hope of humanity. This is the charter of humanity, David's house and a coming son. Do we have hope here? Will this house keep to the paths of God's law and heed God's instruction? Well, I don't want to spoil the story for you, but David's house won't be any better than the other houses we've already read about. In fact, David's house might be worse than all the other houses we've already read about. He might have the most dysfunctional house in all of Scripture. And in the coming chapters, the dysfunction of David's house is going to be exposed. David's sin is going to be exposed before all of Israel. And then David's sons are going to fall one after another after another. It's going to start with Amnon and then Absalom. Then Adonijah, even Solomon, son after son after son, is going to fall. And as we look forward at the story, it seems that God's promise is doomed to fail. But we need to listen to the words. We need to continue in chapter 7. Look at verse 14. The Lord says this to David. When he commits iniquity, so the Lord is speaking about these coming sons, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And so the Lord is not out of touch here with humanity. He's not out of touch with David's house. He knows the quality of David and his house. He knows that there will be sin, much sin to deal with. So the Lord promises not to just be a father, but to act like a father to this house. So when the son errs and sins, what is the Lord going to do? He's not going to spoil the child and spare the rod. No, he's going to take up the rod and he's going to apply the rod to the backside of David's children without fail, without reservation. The Lord is going to afflict David's children using all sorts of means so that they might learn obedience. So the father has this resolve with David's house. He's going to discipline David's house. And so as we take in verse 14, we, we start to change our minds. Maybe there's some hope to David's house because the Lord is going to do something special for this house. But we need to keep reading because verse 14 prepares us for something greater. Verse 15, the Lord says this, My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Saul sinned. What happened to Saul? Saul was destroyed. Saul's house crumbled. Everything was erased. David is going to sin. David's sons are going to sin. But David's house will not crumble. No matter the circumstance, no matter the sin, no matter the rebellion or the stubbornness, the steadfast love of the Lord will never depart from this house. And this is stunning. Consider all the material in chapter 7. Look it over. There's not a single if in chapter 7. David, if you're really good, then I will. There's not a single condition in chapter 7. David, if you get to this level, if you show this maturity, then I will. 
There are no strings attached or fine print. The Lord will never default on his promise. It is guaranteed by God himself. But we need to play the skeptic for a moment. We ask, well, how can I be sure of this guarantee? How can I be sure that God will not forget his promise to David? In fact, how can I be sure that God won't change his mind? I mean, what's going to happen to David's sons when they continue in their rebellion and discipline doesn't prove to prove obedience, doesn't, doesn't bring about obedience in these children of David? Is the Lord going to change his mind? Is he going to get disgruntled and angry with David's house and, and remove everything from them? How can we be sure? Well, we can move down to verses 25 and 26. So in this part of the text, David is speaking back to God. And David gives us the key of the guarantee. So David says, verse 25, verse 26, And now, O Lord God, confirm this word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. So what is David saying here? He's essentially saying, Lord, what you have said to me is so good. I love it. I love it more than anything else. And what I want you to do is I want you to do it. Make it happen. You've promised this house. Build it. Make it happen. And then David keeps speaking, and he makes a connection. David says this, And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Do you see the connection there? Right after David says, do it, make it happen, I want it, he immediately starts speaking about the name of God, and he starts speaking about the name of God in a very specific sort of way, the magnification of God's name. And there's a logic at work here. David understands something. He understands this. When God makes this promise to him, so God is promising his son, enduring house, never-ending steadfast love. David understands that in this promise, God is binding his honor, his worth, his glory, his very reputation to this word. And so that means if the Lord reneges on his promise, he walks it back. Or if this promise to David fails, what does it mean? God's worth, God's honor, God's glory, God's reputation is solid in the sight of all. God will be shown to be weak and impotent and faithless. But on the other hand, if God proves his faithfulness, keeping steadfast love with the house of David forever, God will be seen for who he is, utterly reliable, worthy, glorious, and all of the above. And what happens here is David is applying this logic. He sees that if God keeps this promise, what is going to happen? Well, worship is going to happen. The people of God are going to chant about the greatness of God's name. They're going to say, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And so God binds his promise to his glory, worth, and honor, and God will never let his glory, worth, and honor be sullied. And brothers and sisters, there is massive payoff in this for our souls. Just think about it. We have something solid to stand on. The rock of our confidence in this life is not in the doings of man or the faithfulness of man or anything to do with man himself. No, our confidence is in God himself. He has promised, he has spoken, and he will do what he has said. And if you're hearing with ears of faith, This is balm to our souls. We live in a world of anxiety. 
The world seems just out of control. In fact, we're people of anxiety as we try to manage this out-of-control world, as we try to manage our out-of-control lives. But in this word, the word of the gospel, God comes to us and he bids us out of our anxiety. He bids us to stick our feet upon this guarantee. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him. What's our comfort in this world? It's the promise of God to David's son. God's steadfast love will never depart from him. This reminds me of Psalm 61, and David is riding in the midst of difficult circumstances. The waves are are coming over him again and again, and what does David pray to the Lord? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And that's the call of the gospel to us. When the waves come to us, what do we pray? We pray, lead us to the rock that is higher than than us. And what is that rock? It is the promise made to the Son of God. The steadfast love of God will never depart from him. And this brings us to the fourth word, everlasting. And so the charter of the Lord is everlasting. And so we see that God has fixed a way to deal with mankind in this passage. He's going to deal with mankind through David's line, specifically David's coming son. And as we look into chapter 7, quite astonishingly, there is no end to this arrangement. God will never relate to the world in a different way. His reign, his law, his grace, his will shall come to humanity through one channel, and that is the channel of David's son. There's no end arrangement to this. Look at verse 13. The Lord says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is never going to end. This is God's way of dealing with humanity. And so there we have chapter 7. And we've worked through it with these four words. The charter is what? It is gracious. This is about God and what God is going to do. This charter is specific. It's about a coming son, a coming son of David. Even more, it's guaranteed. This is bound to God's honor and worth. And it's forever. It's everlasting. There is no a person. It's Jesus. It's David's son, the son of God, our Lord. And it's here that the gospel again comes to us doing its great power and work. What is the gospel doing? It's cutting through all of the confusion and the disagreements of our world. And it's speaking a very simple word. And the word is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And it tells us the problem of this world. What is the problem of this world? Men and women do not submit themselves to this Jesus. Look at any issue in this world and you will trace it back to the ultimate issue and it is this. Men and women are not living under the reign of Jesus Christ. And at the very same time, the gospel offers a way out. And the way out this morning is is repentance and faith. The gospel bids this morning, stop your rebellion, cease your conflict, bend down on your knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That is the word of the gospel. It is simple. Christ is king. It diagnoses our worlds and it offers the way out. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so glad that you have given us such a simple word. 
but we believe it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so we pray, would you grant us faith this morning that we might once again appropriate the gospel to our heart and our lives and we would bend our knees gladly with joy to King Jesus, the only King. Do this, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Would you